I'm Kate Daniels. We know that we can't keep living at the pace we've created and consuming at the levels that we have, yet we haven't really embraced this. But prior to the pandemic, J.B. McKinnon was already at work on this book, The Day the World Stopped Shopping, How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves. It's now out and available, and J.B. is here to provide some insights. J.B. McKinnon, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, of course, also thank you for this incredible and amazing book, The Day the World Stopped Shopping, which people might be saying, what? We were just not shopping much, and now you're saying we should stop shopping. But the thing is, as the book takes us through, you know, a couple hundred so pages, there is all the reason behind it. And I think in our in our bones, deep in ourselves, we know that this needs to happen. So Thank you for writing the day the world stopped shopping. Oh, I mean, it was a really fascinating book to work on. And I think you're right that there's this sense that we all have that the, uh, for ourselves and certainly for the planet, we do need to slow down the rate of consumption that's been going on for quite a long time here now. But at the same time, we also recognize that certainly during the pandemic, we saw pretty clearly that if we do stop shopping, um, then the economic consequences can be pretty severe. So this is the dilemma that I really wanted to explore in this book. And that is exactly, I think, what we feel that we appreciated in a qualified sort of way. We appreciated that uh, about a year and a half that we had that altered our life Really challenging, of course, putting that aside for certain segments of the population. But it was like an actual experiment on this of stopping shopping, at least to a degree, to just keeping it to necessities mostly. Yeah, and it was very interesting for me because I'd been working on this as a as a thought experiment. As you know, I just approached this book by saying, "Well, what if one day we all kind of lost the desire to shop and to consume the way we do?" and and so I was well along in writing this book that imagined this scenario. And then all of a sudden, the world did stop shopping. And I had this opportunity to to see if the kinds of things I'd been predicting would play out. And, and they really did. And so when that happened, when the world literally shut down, did you have this feeling of what have I done? Did I in some way contribute to this by asking this cosmic question? <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I mean, a little bit, I think. I think I did sort of go like, oh, boy. But um, um, more, I, I actually, I mean, at first I just thought, wow, like, what, what if I got it all wrong? <laughs> and now I get to see that, that nothing I had uh, I had predicted would actually play out. But it was quite the opposite. And in fact, the uh, the changes that I was predicting in the book took place, uh, not only did they take place, but they took place much more quickly than I'd anticipated. And part of that was seeing how nature responded. Uh, mm-hmm. Isn't that so? How it responded to our not being out traveling in the air and across oceans and, and just on our highways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the first and 
greatest changes that we noticed, right, was, uh, I mean, quietly, without our noticing, until the data came in, carbon emissions plummeted. It was the sharpest drop in carbon emissions in recorded history. Um, we could see that, in a sense, through the really abrupt drop in air pollution. So we, everyone will remember these bluer-than-blue skies that we saw. And uh, those were most shocking, I think, in these big, often heavily polluted cities, uh, mainly in Asia, where a lot of the consumer goods are produced. So that was really extraordinary. And then, as you said, I mean, mass travel, mass tourism is now uh, a really big part of, you know, the consumer lifestyle today. And when that withdrew, um, the results were, were really amazing. I mean, <laughs> my personal favorite is uh, these photos that were captured of American crocodiles that had emerged from the swamps and were enjoying the beaches of Mexico and you know, were photographed surfing the waves and basking uh, the way that human tourists had just a few weeks earlier. <laughs> they said, please stay away or we will eat you up. <laughs> but it was amazing. You know, we would sit in our backyard and, and hear the bird song and really see so m- many more birds arriving. I mean, it was just s- so spectacular and entertaining. Yeah. No, I mean, I think this is something we we hadn't realized was that the natural world can be really fascinating and spectacular and really magical to engage with, but um, we need to give it space to do that, and we haven't been doing that for a long time. But there's also, I mean, really serious consequences to it. Uh, one that I write about in the book is the North Atlantic right whale, which is one of the most endangered whales in the world and you know critically endangered species in in uh, the United States, and they're no longer threatened by whaling. They're threatened by, really, by the the volume of the of uh, consumer culture. They get hit by the ships that bring us our products, and that, that kills them. Their their ocean is full of noise. That's a lot of it created by shipping or by exploration for the resources that we need to uh, to make the products that we use. And their water is busy with boats, uh, polluted with contaminants. You know, the impact, the broad impact of our consumer lifestyles as a whole presents a real life and death threat to a lot of species. And we don't really pay attention to what it takes to have all the different things that we have, the just the different products in our home, the things that we wear the foods that we eat that we want from around the world rather than, well, this relates to a book that you wrote several years ago, well, more than several, but uh, The Hundred Mile Diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole, all of it really, the way we travel, the way we eat, uh, all of these things are bound up in in consumer culture and consumerism. And one of them that I was really struck by was transportation. So we think of uh, we think of transportation as just a basic thing we do. You know, we just we have to get around, and so we do that uh, in the United States, especially by car. And yet, when the economy slowed dramatically at the outset of the pandemic during lockdowns, what we saw was that you know we don't need to travel anywhere near as much if we're not engaged in that normal cycle of earning and spending. We didn't need to do the commuting. You know, and we didn't need to be running back and forth between the various shops and entertainment and things like that that we normally do. So even 
you know, even something as basic as transportation is bound up in this consumer system and that consumer mentality. And I think many of us who had the good opportunity to be able to work uh, remotely and took advantage of that, it began to feel really right. So we didn't need to be doing that commute, which takes up a lot of both time and our energy, uh, our personal energy, but the energy of just the fuels that are consumed. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And a lot of it, too, comes down to, well, certainly something I found really fascinating during the pandemic was the way that people reinvented their lives pretty rapidly uh, to live a lower consuming lifestyle because the other, the, the usual, wasn't available anymore. And I, I had been talking to psychologists who study materialism and consumerism ahead of the pandemic, and they had told me this. I, like I had said, well, you know, if people weren't shopping uh, so much, what would they be doing with their time? And they, they told me, well, we think they would take a turn towards away from values that are founded in income and possessions and status and towards more inherently satisfying uh, practices like investing more time and energy into your relationships with people you care about or your physical fitness, uh, mastering skills, uh, their spirituality perhaps, spending time in nature. And these are precisely the things that we saw people turn towards in the pandemic. What the psychologist hadn't been able to predict. I said, well, how long would that take? And they were like, well, you know, we don't really know. The world hasn't stopped shopping before, so <laughs> we can't tell you that. But we saw it happen, as you'll remember, almost overnight. Yes. And there were people who really embraced it in the sense of coming together as a family and finding new ways of connecting and spending their time rather than uh, ju just being on the go all the time and going out to dinner and sitting there all engaged in their own cell phones. Yeah, that's exactly what, what I observed as well and heard from people. Uh, and, you know, I, I heard from people people specifically saying, you know, when you step back from the consumer culture, you don't really miss it that much. And you saw people reinventing what they did with their time. Uh, you know, where I live here in Vancouver, and I'm sure this is the case in cities around the world, all of a sudden, you know, people were out uh, picnicking with whatever small group of people they were allowed to picnic with in parks and passing their time that way. Um, the trails, hiking trails and things like that were were uh, full of people who were you know, taking the opportunity to explore their local world. Uh, there are all kinds of different things people did. And uh, I mean, of course, on the other side of it, people watched a lot of TV. <laughs> <laughs> there was that as well, which was an interesting, uh, there was a kind of surge in the consumption of, of different things. So we are, uh, consumption is what we know best, really. It's, uh, it's a, pattern most of us have been following since childhood. And so it's no surprise that another, you know, an eventual thing that happened in the pandemic was as the economy reoriented to people being at home, um, people did start consuming again by online shopping and direct shipping. And of course, just consuming the digital sphere itself. Yes, there there is that something within us that seems to really still fall into that old 
habit, that old trap. And it was interesting to read, which I read from your book, that Thoreau said that, you know, I have these ideas, I have these words, but, you know, that his actions didn't always follow suit, even when he knew that. And I think that's that's true for many of us. We know what we want, but yet we fall into the habits. Yeah, and working on this book has actually made me a lot more compassionate for ourselves, you know, for ourselves as consumers, because we live in a society where the the economy is driven by consumption. It's a it's a consumer society, and so it shouldn't come as a, a shock to us that that we end up consuming in that. There's a lot of things that compel us to do that. There's a there's an enormous advertising industry, for example. We've seen in the pandemic that if that if we do put our wallets away. Uh, the government will actually cut us checks and send them to us in the mail to get, you know, specifically to get us uh, back out there spending. You know, also to support people who are in hardship, of course. But uh, but a lot a lot of it is to get that money flowing back into the the economy. And then you know, uh, celebrity culture and lifestyle media and you know, it kind of goes on and on. So. We're very used to the idea that we express ourselves through our consumption, that we express our identities, um, that we determine you know, where we are in the status hierarchy according to what we own. Uh, these are things that they're just the water that we swim in normally, and, and we're really skilled at navigating those waters. The pandemic shook a lot of that up, and I think it caused a lot of people to reflect on you know, what is this consumption lifestyle really providing to me? Is it is it giving me a whole lot of, you know, is, is each new thing that I buy providing me with a lot more well-being or a lot more happiness? Uh, and you saw people really looking at their priorities and values. And, and that, yes, that question arises. And, and it's one that we've potentially been asking, especially in this last year and a half, and we realize that those that the stuff of it is stuff, and it's just we we don't necessarily even know all the stuff that we have, and that's the part that's just both you know makes me cringe that this is the case even for myself too that this is the way we are, and what are we doing to ourselves and the and the planet in doing that? Yeah, one one conversation I really remember in that regard was talking to. Uh, a vice president at Levi's, a man named Paul Dillinger. And he pointed out, I said, well, you know, what if we had this big drop, say 25% drop in consumer spending globally? You know, what does that look like? And he said, well, let's go a little farther and say a 50% drop in, in clothing purchases. Well, you know, he said, most of us don't wear um, at least half the stuff that we have in our house. So, you could clear out 50% of the clothes in most households. Everybody would still have lots of stuff to wear. And, and in fact, we wouldn't even know. <laughs> we wouldn't even miss the 50% of things that we, that we gave up. Uh, I think that's true of a lot of different aspects of consumption that, uh, yeah, we, we, we fill our world with things, but uh, do we even use a lot of them? And, and certainly, um, if we ask the question, you know, does adding um, does adding consumption at this point in a lot of people's households is it adding much in terms of well-being? Is it adding a lot in terms of happiness? So if we if we think and this is I find a really surprising statistic, but if 
uh, in the last 15 years in the United States, consumer spending has increased by 25%. Now, that some of that is accounted for by increase in population, but most of it is just accounted for by uh, buying more things, spending money on goods, services, and experiences. Has you know, Have we had a 25% increase in well-being uh, or happiness or life satisfaction? I really don't think we have. So we're we're adding a lot of consumption at a cost to ourselves and the and the planet, uh, and it's not it's not contributing very much to our lives. And and that is the thing that we had the time in theory to be contemplating that, and I think many of us went through that. Whether it's really going to stick, we still get bombarded by all the com- uh, commercials, all, all the advertising that goes on in the various different media. Uh, even looking at your cell phone, you can't scroll through something without an ad popping up and saying, oh, take a look at this. I mean, our world is just so inundated with that. Yeah, and one of the things that you do notice in 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 a world that stops shopping is a lot less advertising. So if, if advertising pretty closely follows uh, the ups and downs of the economy. And in countries where you have a smaller economy that's churning along at a, at, a, at a lower rate, you have a lot, you see a lot less advertising. And with that, you see a lot less of the impact of advertising. So people don't feel as, uh, as acutely aware of trends they need to be following or um, micro fashions that they need to be paying attention to, um, their, their heads are a little bit clearer of this, uh, this kind of tidal wave of marketing messaging that we certainly face in, in countries like the United States. And I visited uh, Ecuador, which is a country where the UN rates it as having a high uh, degree of development. It's a highly developed nation, but its rate of consumption is much, much lower than in countries like uh, the United States or most of the countries in Europe. And the advertising is dramatically less in Ecuador. And I, I recall flying from Ecuador into Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and just immediately just being shocked at, at the, uh, the flood of marketing messages that I encountered and I, just in, I think I, I was in Ecuador about 10 days, and just in 10 days, I'd kind of gotten adapted to this quieter mental environment, mm. and then got back to Dallas-Fort Worth and was like, wow, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you don't really realize how powerful it is until you've stepped out of it for a little bit. Yes. I think sometimes we might feel that in terms of being on vacation where we just don't look at a newspaper or even listen to the news and come back to to our world and think oh my gosh it, it's it just is almost painful as how all of that bombards us mm-hmm. absolutely so to that to to all the this kind of advertising that goes on the messages that come at us and we buy into it, literally buying, that the thing in North America is, and you talk about this in the book, as to how much we consume versus the rest of the world. And if they, who want to keep up with the Joneses, who are North America, if they were to do that, our planet 
totally cannot sustain it. It can't sustain even what we are doing as North Americans here. Yeah, the, there's a group called the Global Footprint Network that's been crunching data on this for a good 20 years now, I think. And they, by their measure, if everybody on Earth lived the lifestyle of the average American, then we'd need five planets worth five planet Earth's worth of resources to sustain everybody's uh, lifestyle. And yet, yeah, there are countries around the world where if if we all lived like the average Ecuadorian, for example, um, Ecuador is a small country down in South America for anyone who's not familiar. If we all lived like the average Ecuadorian, uh, we can we can all get by on the resources of the planet we live on today. And so I, I wanted to visit that place just to see what that lifestyle looked like and to see whether um, really I went there because a, a lot of the time when you say, well, we, we need to live at a sustainable level of consumption, people say, well, that's going back to the Stone Age. Um, when I went to Ecuador, I could see that that clearly wasn't true. Um, the average person in Ecuador has a lifestyle that resembles the one that we live in in the richer countries, but less of everything. You know, it's uh, you're considerably less likely to own a car and more likely to be using transit systems. You are less likely to take trips by airplane. You're, you're going to own fewer things. You're going to own fewer clothes. Um, but the lifestyle would be familiar to anyone who remembers uh, the 1960s, um, you know, the 1970s even. It's, it's not a, it's a very different life but it's not a life that's, that's unrecognizable in any way, and it certainly isn't a life of, of uh, barest survival. Oh, indeed. Having lived at that time, it was a very comfortable life, and I anticipated life would be like that. Actually, uh, by, where I lived, my parents didn't even own a car, so... That wasn't something I, I grew up with, but of course I wanted to have a car once I was working and able to do so. So, you know, falling into that kind of a trap. But yes, that you're, you're so right in it, and it's so important to embrace that, to realize that it's just simpler. I mean, we, we know now that rather than relying on our car, if we use the train or a link rail or uh, instead of that car, we're going to feel less stressed going from point A to point B. Yeah, and really, I mean, I think you put your, your finger on it. Um, it. It is this little bit simpler, slower pace of life. And it provides us with something that we all, or that many of us, most of us, I think, feel poor in these days, which is time. Uh, people talk about this being the era of time famine because we all feel uh, really stressed. And it isn't just that we work long hours, we do, uh, but uh, it isn't only that. It's also that we fill our lives with with activities, um, what the, the consumer historian David Shi once called the prison of activities. <laughs> and... Uh, when we look back to eras or if we look at cultures where consumption is lower, then we see that you know, generally people have quite a bit more free time. I mean, we don't have to turn the clock back very far, uh, even in North America, 
to hit the time when every Sunday uh, all the shops closed, even in even in the biggest cities. And it was a day when most people weren't working and were able to connect with each other. Uh, it was a whole day where you could live by a rhythm other than commercial culture. Yes. And 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 life was so fine. We just didn't think that we were missing out on anything with that being the way things were. Yeah, I mean, that's how I remembered it as well. In fact, uh, I lived uh, through sort of the last years, I guess, of, of, uh, of the Sabbath up here in Canada and British Columbia. I learned to drive in empty mall parking lots <laughs> for, <laughs> on Sundays. And... Uh, and uh, yeah, I certainly don't remember um, a desperate desire to to fill that day with with all of the conventional stuff that took place on all the other days. And one of the things I looked at was uh, some really good data from from the UK, which used to have a very strict uh, Sunday Sabbath. They would even close pubs and restaurants and things like that, cafes even. And uh, when they were starting to move away from that. Um, some citizen scientists went out and just interviewed a whole lot of people about how they felt about Sundays. And and um, most people, uh, there was very little opposition to to the Sabbath in the UK. People, Some people found it a bit dull, but most people uh, found it valuable. They enjoyed the fact that it, that it had a different feel to it, uh, a different atmosphere. And that uh, everyone was available because n- almost nobody was working. So you always had this one day when you could, you knew that you could connect to the people you cared about. Right. So a, a regular kind of situation that we were experiencing with what it took a pandemic to do to have that at least a day <laughs> downtime. Yeah, ultimately. And and, I mean, the the history is somewhat similar in the United States as well. It was challenged repeatedly in the Supreme Court, just the existence of of uh, Sunday closing. But the the Supreme Court consistently just kept coming back to saying, like, no, this is a this is a a day with a special quality that is not, you know, had had evolved into something that wasn't a specifically Christian ritual and had been embraced by um, by Americans from every walk of life, as uh, you know, as a as a a special kind of day in the week, and they specifically called it a uh, you know it, it's a break from commercial time and from the pace and rhythms of commercial time, and that's something that we are really missing, I think, in in society today. When when the I mean, with the onset of online shopping, everything is open all the time and even in the even in the real life world you're seeing more and more often that people people can go shopping on Thanksgiving day they can go shopping on Christmas day they can go shopping in the middle of the night um there's there's really almost nothing left of that non-commercial time that even the Supreme Court of the United States recognized the value of exactly and that is why this book the day the world stops shopping 
How Ending Consumerism Saves the Environment and Ourselves is so critically relevant and important for us to read. We've only kind of tapped into a little part of it in our conversation this morning, and we really would have been so great to get more into our de-consumer culture, but that's where picking up a copy of the book, okay, it's a bit consumerish, however... There's great value here. This is this is education that uh, will pro- will pay greater than uh, what's going on here. And I think even I'm going to say this that that the paper is of a quality to make it uh, more cons- uh, what environmentally friendly, right? Yeah, I think it uh, it is kind of a beautiful object. And if the if a lower consuming future involves buying. Uh, fewer things but better things then you know i'm hoping people will consider this a, a book worth worth uh, worth consuming i i trust that the, that we will feel that way and so um of course at all our favorite bookstores shopping our local favorite bookstores is a good idea also more information on your website so let's mention that jb yeah my website is jbmckinnon.com and mckinnon is spelled M-A-C-K-I-N-N-O-N. Well, this has been just truly such a gift to have you spend time with us this morning and have us really be thinking more in depth about the days and months and year we spent and how to make it really last into the future and, and save ourselves and our planet. So thank you greatly. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure.